Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Let's stand as read God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, follow along the screen behind me. Welcome to all of you watching online. Luke, not Luke, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark. Now when they, this is Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. Send it here back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought to the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that were, they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Verse 15, skip on down. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. You may be seated. How has your week been? It's been a good week. It's been a good week. You know, for some of us, each week, sometimes it's just a blur. Like, it just feels like to me, last, yesterday was Sunday. Anybody else in the room? You know, there are some weeks, they're just blurs. Other weeks, man, they can be life-altering. You know, here, here's what I found. I, I, as I'm getting older, as I'm staring 40 in the face, amen, amen, didn't, didn't Jimmy Buffett write a song about turning 40 or something anyway, not every week is created equal, right? There's some weeks that are awesome, some weeks are mundane, some of you maybe, you, some of you, you know, you remember some good weeks in your life, so I... One of the, the good weeks of my life, I remember on June the 14th, 2008, is the week, I, the day and the week, I married my wife, April. We'll be married 15 years in June. Praise the Lord for her. Amen? Amen. 
Listen, ain't no woman like the one I got, all right? Ain't no woman like the one I got. I remember on July the 22nd, 2009, we went to the hospital and I picked up for the first time a little critter named Aaron. And we brought that critter into my house and back then he was so cute. I mean, he was really cute. Maybe you have different days, different weeks, things that have happened in your life. You've had good weeks, but maybe you've had not so good weeks. I mean, you, you remember the week that COVID became a thing and everything went down, the whole world shut down? Do you remember, maybe some of you remember 9-11? Think about this, the graduating class this year wasn't alive when, when September 11th, 2001 happened. If you didn't think you were old, you're old now, right? <laughs> Could you imagine the week that some people in Nashville are having whose families have been forever, not forever, but have been devastated on this side of eternity? Think about that. But here's what I want you to hear. That, that whether you're having a great week or it's been a normal week or maybe it's been a horrible week, there's one week that changed everything forever, and it is a week known as Holy Week or Passion Week, and it started almost 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. It's the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry before the cross and before the empty tomb, and it is a week that has changed countless billions of people's lives all around the world. It has changed my life, and my prayer is that it changes your life. As a matter of fact, over the next three months, we're gonna walk through the last week of the life of Jesus. And so, as we looked at last week, for the first time in public, a blind man actually declared that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, he is the final king, and he, even though he was blind, had more spiritual eyesight than most people in the Bible. And as we have gone through these first 10 chapters of Mark, everything has pointed us to this moment. And everything that Jesus is going to do those seven days in Jerusalem is really the whole purpose of why he came. It was his mission. It was what his life was about. And so as we look at this week, we're, we're going to move really quick and then we're going to move really slow. And the first thing we see is that the first three days of this week, Jesus takes three separate trips to the temple. And in all three of these trips, they will be a frontal assault on the religious establishment of that day. And it will be that frontal assault on those religious hacks that will ultimately lead to the death of Jesus on the cross. And so what we see this morning is this. What happens on Palm Sunday and in the temple on Monday tell us why Jesus came and what Jesus came to do. And so what Mark is going to do is he's going to point us in these two little events to a humble and saving king, Jesus, who came to deliver us from shallow and hollow religion. So let's just unpack that. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is the humble king in the shallow crowd. Verse one, when they drew near Jesus and his entourage, remember I told you he, Jesus was coming with his fishermen, his disciples, uh, but he's also coming with other folks. He's coming with a blind man. He's coming with a, a former blind man. He's coming with a former crippled man. He, he's coming with, with people that were former prostitutes. You had meatheads, knuckleheads, 
turkey heads, all kinds of people there with him, saved, redeemed, following Jesus. And so his entourage is there. They have traveled, and there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. So Mark, again, is getting us kind of quick to the point. He's traveled 18 miles from Jericho, which is 800 feet below sea level, up to almost to Jerusalem, which is 3,000 feet above sea level. So almost a 4,000 feet incline. And they stopped two miles east in a town called Bethany or Bethpage outside of the city of Jerusalem. And so they are at the very foot of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives actually is 200 feet taller than the temple, uh, top of the temple. And so it was a, the large mountain outside the city of Jerusalem and it overlooked the tallest structure in Israel, the temple. And so Jesus, before he gets into the old city, he sends two disciples ahead. We don't know their names. He gives them instructions. He says, I want you to go into town. You're gonna find a colt. The colt's gonna be tied up, never been ridden before. You untie the colt, bring them to me. And if someone sees you doing it and says, hey, why are you stealing my car? You say, the Lord has need of it. And so if you ever steal a car, <laughs> Jesus is teaching you what to say here, right? <laughs> just kidding, just, just kidding. And so verses four through six, everything that Jesus said came true. And whether it was prearranged or not, we don't know, but it came to pass. He knew when, he knew where, he knew how. He even knew the history of the cult that no one's ever wrote on him before. Now, what is a cult? A cult is a young, small donkey. Think, for those of you who will get this reference, little Sebastian. Okay? Some of you don't get, he who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says, okay? So, but he says, the Lord needs it. And so here the king, who has authority over all, is claiming what is already his to be used for his purposes. Oh, may I be a colt, a donkey for Jesus. And so why a colt? Why a, why a small, young donkey? Well, kings rode on war horses, stallions, or, or they rode on donkeys. And so it wasn't uncommon to ride on a donkey. But a colt was a ride fit for a child. It was a ride fit for a hobbit. And here you have the miracle-working, authoritative, all-powerful creator king riding on a tiny donkey. And he is riding into town. And when he's riding into town, he is doing something. He's proclaiming who he is, that he is the one true Messiah king. He is deity on a donkey. You say, well, how, how would anybody know that? Glad you asked. 500 years before this event took place, a guy named Zechariah prophesied about it. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, here's what it said over 500 years prior to Jesus riding on a, in a town on a donkey. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation to see, humble and mounted on a, say it with me, donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There it is. Now listen, in Jesus's day, in ancient Israel, kings rode on donkeys. Solomon, when he became king, he rode on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Donkeys were symbols of peace. But here you have Jesus, the prince of peace, poor, homeless, simple. I mean, even the donkey he rode into town on was borrowed. He rented a donkey. Everything that Jesus had was borrowed. The boat that he preached to the multitudes on was a borrowed boat. The room that he had the Lord's Supper in, the Last Supper, was a borrowed room. The tomb, he only used for three days. It was a borrowed tomb. Everything Jesus had was borrowed. And here you have this humble king riding into the 
big city of Jerusalem. Could you imagine if the president of the United States drove into Naples in a beat up 2001 white Kia? <laughs> now, if you have a 2001 white Kia, we love you and there's nothing wrong with your car, but could you imagine the president riding into town on that rather than like a huge black Escalade? I mean, what, what, what was going on? So Jesus is riding into town. And so verses seven and eight, we gotta hurry up. They brought cloaks put them on the road. The road was stinky, dirty, nasty. And so, because the king is coming, they threw their cloaks, they threw their jackets onto the ground. Now listen, this was red carpet in that day. So here they roll out the red carpet, then they get their palm branches, uh, which would be like confetti. And so here you have a parade, a parade that was done for the king. Jesus isn't some Yankee doodle riding into town on a pony. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, riding into town on a donkey. And so, these palm branches are waving. These palm branches are on the ground. The palm branches weren't just something they, you know, hey, let's cut something down so we can wave it. They actually symbolized something. They were symbolic in Israel as a symbol of revolution. And so here you have this symbol of revolution that was a symbol that was used in 164 BC in the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks. It was a symbol that one day Israel would rise again. And so they see this king coming in on a colt. They roll the red carpet out. He's a peaceful king. They wave their branches. And what they were interpreting in this moment is that Jesus was going to bring revolution. He's going to bring revolution. And so they shout in verses 9 and 10, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Does it mean praise the Lord? It means it's a transliteration, Greek, Hebrew to Greek which says, save us now. It comes from Psalm 118, one of the songs that would be sang, it would be on the greatest hits as you came into town. And so if you had your Spotify playlist, the Hallels would be on there. Uh, Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, 118, you know you're getting close. And so the Psalm 118, verse 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord, Hosanna. That's what it is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so actually that what they're saying here is almost like responsive cha chanting, responsive chanting. So like if we were to go like blue, white, blue, white. I don't know why I would do that. But anyway, <laughs> Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he our father. So our father David. And so here they're coming and there's like this chat, this chanter, the chanting and, and it's kind of like going to like a FIFA soccer game and people were going nuts. And so they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this would be a welcome. We welcome you as king. Now, who was the people doing this? More than likely, they weren't people from Jerusalem. They were probably pilgrims from Galilee or from other regions in the Roman Empire who had probably heard of Jesus, witnessed his miracles, listened to his sermons. Like all of them had them on, on their podcast. I mean, Jesus was number one on iTunes at that time. And, and, and they, were, they literally, this group of people had waited all their lives for this moment. I mean, their grandmas and grandpas and great grandmas and grandpas had told them that one day a Messiah is gonna come. He's gonna come riding on a donkey. And when that happens, you get happy. And they say, blessed is he who comes. And as our father, Dave, as, as uh, the kingdom of, of our father, David, this is speaking that he is the Messiah King. Now, there's something else going on. And for some of you, this sermon might be a lot of information, but stay with me. This was very big about when it happened. 
Why would this happen at Passover? Why would Jesus come at Passover? Well, one, there were three feasts that all Jewish people, typically from around the world, came to, one of which was Passover. But Passover was a special holiday for the people of Israel. Passover was that holiday that celebrated the freedom of God's people from bondage in Egypt. And so it would be tantamount, Passover would be the 4th of July for Americans. It's a day that we celebrate our independence, our freedom from, from, from Britain. And so Israel, for years and years and years, every year celebrated their independence. Well, now they're not independent anymore. Now they are oppressed. Now they are in bondage. And so Passover was a day in which the Jewish people would be very angry. And there would also be a day of anticipation. And so this was a normal, especially during this time, there was a lot of rumblings. There would be a lot of people who would rise up and do coup de, try to attempt coup d'etats against Rome and be completely obliterated. And so these Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, they are looking and longing for someone to save them from Rome, and they believe it's Jesus, and they want him to come and restore the, the majesty of the Davidic kingdom and make Israel great again. They were looking for someone to kick Rome out and to set up a new kingdom. And so they're there, they're waving their palm branches, they're getting excited, but they don't really understand who Jesus is. They, they don't know what he has come to do. I mean, John chapter 12, verse 16 says that while the Palm Sunday thing was going on, the disciples didn't understand. Maybe you're here today and you don't understand what's going on here. As soon as this parade is over, Luke tells us that Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem because they didn't get it. See, they had a view of who Jesus should be. And they had a, a, a desire for what Jesus should do. But their view of who Jesus was and, and what they wanted Jesus to do was shallow. Now you say, well, it wasn't shallow. I mean, they were pretty passionate. I mean, they, they threw their cloaks on the road. They were singing. They, they were praising. I mean, doesn't that mean something? Well, passionate praise is good, but, but passionate praise doesn't necessarily mean true heartfelt worship of God. You can raise your hands, you can sing really loud, and your heart can be so far from God. Now, there were some in the crowd who believed, but the majority in the crowd, they only loved Jesus for what he could do for them. They worshiped Jesus, but it was for themselves. And what happens, the object of their worship really wasn't Jesus. It was themselves. You know, how many times do we come to church thinking that if I can just sing a little bit and pray a little bit and read a little bit, that God will kind of grease God up a little bit. And he'll start doing stuff I want him to do. Listen, that's, this is not how that works. What they wanted, they wanted salvation. They said, save us now. But the salvation they wanted was not the salvation that he wanted to give them. They wanted salvation, but they wanted salvation without surrender. They wanted to be released from Rome. They didn't want to repent of their sins. They thought that their greatest need was freedom from Rome. But they didn't see that their greatest need was freedom from the penalty of their sin. They, like many people in America, saw themselves as victims who deserved to be saved, not sinners who needed to be forgiven. Any of you like that? Any of us like that? I mean, think about what the whole world is about the victim mentality. 
I'm a victim, I'm a victim. And sadly, some people are truly victims. But we're also all sinners. And whatever we have done or whatever has been done to us pales in comparison to what we have done to him. You know, a lot of people, when they come to church or when they, when they, when they come and think about Jesus, they come with their minds already made up about what they're looking for. They're, they're looking for a God in their own image. They're looking for a savior of their own imaginations. They're looking for a genie in a bottle. And when he's not what they think he should be, and they go somewhere else. Here's the reality, stay with me. This is gonna help a lot of us if we just really put this into our hearts. The temporary and earthly can never satisfy the eternal. It just can't. Think, think right now, this is like in your mind, if you're still with me, what is, what's your biggest need right now? Some of you are like right now, like you, you live in Naples and, and you're like, man, the biggest need is we gotta change who's in the White House. Or we gotta change who's in the State House. Or we gotta change who's in the City Council. We gotta change. We gotta, it's political. That the biggest need, man, if we wanna see everything, it's political. Some of you think, no, man, my, my biggest need is, man, I, I need some more money. Or my biggest need is, man, I need my investments to do good, or I, I, need, I need the stock market to tick up, or I need my 401k to come back again, right? I need, I need my, my, my business partners to, to do, I mean, it's fine, but that's not your biggest need. You say, well, no, my biggest need is, you know, I'm lonely, or I'm depressed, or I'm sad, and, and I need more friends, or I need to get married, or my marriage stinks, <laughs> or my kids stink, Right? And so my biggest need is I gotta get my marriage right. My biggest need is I gotta get my kids right. My biggest need is I gotta, I gotta get myself right. Or maybe you think, you know what, man, I'm, I'm physically sick. I'm physically hurting, man. The biggest need of my life is I just wanna feel good. Or, or I just, I don't wanna have cancer anymore. Or, or man, my biggest need is I need to lose weight and feel great. But let me tell you something. Those are needs, but those aren't your biggest needs. Because each and every one of those needs ends in the ground. Each and every one ends in the grave. Those are temporary needs and temporary solutions to fix temporary needs don't deal with eternal problems. Your biggest need is not a temporary fix. Your biggest need is an eternal fix. What they were looking for and what so many Americans are looking for is a temporary earthly fix to an eternal solution. But what you need more than a fun weekend is you need a, right, a heart right with God. And that's what I need. And here you have a humble king who is being praised by a shallow crowd. But then he goes a little bit further. Now you have not only a humble king with a shallow crowd, but I want you to see a saving king with a hollow crowd or with a hollow religion. Verse 11, he goes into town riding on his donkey, goes up to the temple, goes into the temple, goes, shows up to church. It's late. Missed the 1130 service. No one's there. So the Bible says he turns around and goes back to Bethany. Very anticlimactic. It's kind of like the end of a Disney parade. It's like, what was that all about, you know? <laughs> you made me move out of the street to get to something that was nothing. It was a nothing burger. But it wasn't a nothing burger. Jesus went to the temple, not as a tourist, 
Jesus went to the temple as a man on a mission because the temple in Jesus's day was the center of life and the center of religion. It was the most important place. He shows up there, he looks around, he leaves and comes back to his house and then he gets up the next morning. I feel like at the end of Palm Sunday, Jesus went to the temple, said what Arnold said, I'll be back. So he's going back. He gets up the next morning. He and his disciples, he's heading. We didn't read this, but he's leaving Bethany, that two-mile journey. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He goes up to the tree. It's got full leaves. There's no figs. There's no little nodules. There's nothing. It wasn't fig season. And he looks at the tree, and he says to the tree, may no one ever eat of your fruit ever again. Why would he do that? Was this a moment where Jesus was hangry? No, Jesus didn't sin here. There's a lot of debate. No, Jesus, this was an object lesson, okay? This is an object lesson. And it's an object lesson that he's doing for his disciples to explain what he's about to do in the temple. See, the fig tree was a metaphor for Israel. And it looked alive on the outside. But it was no, there was no fruit, it looked like there was something going on, but, but when you examine it further, there's no real signs of spiritual life. So Jesus is going to go to the very center and heart of the Jewish religion and is going to expose the emptiness of it. That on the outside, it looked ornate. On the outside, it looked shiny. On the outside, it looked awesome. But on the inside, it was dead. So he goes to the temple, verse 15. When you walk into the temple in the first century, the big outer court, it's kind of like our commons or our little hallways here, the big outer court would be called the court of the Gentiles. It was the largest part of the temple. There would be thousands of square feet of of space, and it was the only place, God set this up, it was the only place that non-Jewish people could enter into the temple and pray. But in Jesus' day, it was a place where business took place. That's where all the tourists went to buy their little temple key rings. And it was a place where business for the temple happened, and especially during the feast days. During the Passover, thousands of people would be there in the court of the Gentiles buying and selling thousands of animals. Josephus, who's a historian of that time, said that during the Passover, there was over 255,000 animals lambs that were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple that week. This place was crowded. This would be like Disney World on steroids with animals everywhere. And those animals were being slaughtered. It was crowded. It was loud. It was smelly. People were everywhere, lined up. Money changers were there exchanging foreign currency to get the half-shekel temple tax paid, and the place was confusing, it was chaotic, and in the midst of this chaos, all these people clamoring around, Jesus comes into the temple, and he starts throwing furniture. Like, he starts throwing tables, and throwing chairs, and kicking animals, not kicking animals, but kicking people that sold animals out. And he was, get out of here, get out of here. And all the time he's saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. All right, Jesus curses the fig tree, 
and then comes in and goes WWE on the Temple Mount. <laughs> what is going on here? Well, first, number one, Jesus is angry in a godly way. You can be, you can be angry and not sin. Okay, you can be good and angry, and, but you can also be angry and not be good. But what the problem was is that God's plan had always been for all people. Salvation for all people. Not just for the exclusive, but for the excluded. Those who were excluded are now included. Those who are not allowed are now allowed. Everybody gets access to God. Those that were not a people are now a people. And this proclamation that salvation was both for Jew and Gentile should have been celebrated in the temple, should have been communicated in the temple, but instead it was just a busy place with nothing going on spiritually. You know, a lot of churches, they're busy. They're full of people. They, they have events, they, they have programs, people come in and out, busy. But just because you're busy doesn't mean you're spiritual. Just because churches have a lot of bells and whistles, and listen, we at First Naples, we got a few bells and whistles. We do. But just because you have bells and whistles doesn't mean people are praying. It doesn't mean people are being discipled. It doesn't mean that God's presence is there. And a matter of fact, the reason why we have large churches that look impressive on the outside but are dead on the inside is because they're so busy that they don't even know that God has left the room. There's a survey that was done in the past six months from Generation Z. I'm a millennial. My kids are Gen Z. Their kids or the ones that are younger than them are Gen Alpha. Gen Z are those born from 2000 to 2020. 61% of them say that attending church is not important because they believe they can find God somewhere else. Yet, 73% of Generation Z say they desire to have a connection with God and to grow spiritually. But of those total people in Generation Z, which is the largest people group in America right now, only 22% of Generation Z attend church regularly. regularly. Why? Because they come and they see he's not there. Church, we must prioritize God's presence and God's power over our programs and our performances if we wanna reach the next generation. We can't be fake because Jesus says, listen, this place was to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Now that goes back to Jeremiah 7. We don't have time to unpack all that, but basically what it amounted to was people would go do bad things. They come to church, claim sanctuary, and act like everything was fine. But, in, but instead of pursuing God, they were using God and continuing living as nasty as they were. How many people go live like the devil during the week, come to church, fix their halo, look the part, dress the part, but inside, there's nothing. See, a lot of people, they come to church to feel good about themselves. They want to look good. I go to church. Now, that's changing in American culture, believe it or not. Because it used to be, 50 years ago, everybody went to church. Now, nobody goes to church. It's just the truth. I'll be honest with you, right now, if you were to drive around, there's way more people at the country club than there are in the church. Guarantee it. There are way more people at Walmart and Publix and at the mall than there are at the church. 
It just is what it is. I would guess probably 10% of our county maybe attend church every now and again. But sometimes we come to church and all we want, we want to look the part, but we don't want to be the part. And so Jesus came to the temple. He came to church. And when he came to church that day, it wasn't to cleanse it. It wasn't to reform it. You know what it was? He was doing the same thing he did with the fig tree. He comes to the temple and he curses the temple and he rejects the temple. Now you say, what? Yeah, Jesus, when he overthrew the tables, he was saying all this activity in the temple, it's gotta cease because you don't need it anymore. This, all these sacrifices, you don't need these sacrifices anymore. Now, here's the thing. The irony is this, is that the thought in the first century was when Messiah came, he was gonna kick out all the Gentiles, all the foreigners, okay? He was gonna just kick them out. And he's gonna save the Jews. And so when Jesus comes to the temple, what does he do? Well, they're expecting him to judge the Gentiles and save the Jews, but instead, Jesus judges the Jews and opens the way for the Gentiles, how can he do that? Because the Gentiles didn't have the law. The Gentiles didn't have the sacrificial system. How could he do that? How could he do that? How could he open the way? Now listen, unless you're Jewish in here, you better be glad he did this. He overturned the tables. He kicked out the animals. Why? Because they didn't need them anymore. They didn't need that sheep. They didn't need that pigeon. You know why? Because Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. You didn't need the money changers. You didn't even need the temple. Why? Because Jesus is the true and better temple. All those Old Testament sacrifices were all just temporary solutions that could not fix an eternal problem. They were just like paying interest on a debt only. They never one time touched the debt, but there is a debt that all of us owe, and that debt is eternal separation from God for eternity. And Jesus Christ came on the cross, and he paid the debt, and he opened up for everyone who believes in him a way to God. So you don't need your fake religion anymore. You know what religion is? Religion is humanity trying to get to God on their own. It's like God's up on the mountain. I'm at the bottom of the mountain. I got to climb up. So I got to be smart. I got to outwit, outlast, outsurvive everybody else. Got to do good works. Got to pray a lot. Got to give a bunch of money. Got to be a nice person. Here the problem is. Those are temporary solutions. Temporary solutions are never enough. And here's what happens. If you use religion to get right with God, it will always be exposed as empty. Jesus came to put an end to empty religion. He came to say, you cannot save yourselves. You need me to save you. And what do you think their response was? Wasn't good. Verse 18 Chief priests and scribes heard it and they sought a way to destroy him. Jesus stirred up the den of robbers. And guess who the den of robbers was? The preachers, the teachers, the pastors. He came into their church and called them all frauds and exposed the emptiness of their religion. And here's what I found. You mess with someone's religion, you're living on borrowed time. You, you get in the way of someone's religion, their way of life, you'll see their fury. Like, if your religion is your family, and you worship your family, and your family is your idol, 
and you met someone messes with your family, the wrath of you will come out on that person. If your religion is money and it's about making money and having stuff, if anybody gets in the way of your money, you get mad. That's why sometimes y'all hear sermons about, preach, about giving and you're like, well, stinking church, I'll go to another one, <laughs> right? Because someone is getting between you and your money. Someone's getting between you and your family. If someone gets, hey, if your religion is sports and all you want, you want your kids to go to AAU and you want them to do stuff because they're promising that if little Johnny or little Sally goes to AAU, doesn't go to church on Sunday, then I'm gonna make them a professional athlete. They just want your money. But in your mind, in your mind, you think, oh, I want, I can't, I want to be at the final four. And I want them to have a, a I want the video to be on me because that's little Johnny. And I'm going to do whatever. Listen, if somebody gets between you and sports, you and Kentucky basketball, someone gets in between. It's on like Donkey Kong, right? Someone messes with your religion, you get mad. What did Jesus do? Jesus said the entirety of your life has been a sham because you have trusted in yourself rather than God. So let's end. If I made you mad, I love you. Sometimes you gotta get made mad so that God can make you glad. Mark, I, there's so, I could spend like the next seven hours, but I can't. Mark is presenting a choice. You see it subtly in the text, there's a choice. Will you be like the crowd? Will you be like the chief priest? Who will you choose? Which king will you choose? Because here's the thing, there's another king, another ruler who came into town the same week Jesus came. You know what his name was? Pilate. Pilate rode into town because he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea Maritima, which is like the Naples of Israel. He lived on the beach. And during Passover, because a lot of unrest was happening, he had to come in to make sure it didn't go out of control. And so when Pilate came in the same week, he came in on a war horse on a stallion. He came in with chariots. He came in with an army. He came in with shock and awe. He came from the west. Jesus came from the east. He came on a war horse. Jesus came on a colt of a donkey. He came with a mighty army, Jesus came with a ragtag group of disciples. Who are you gonna choose? Are you gonna choose the way of the world which is big and shiny and flashy or are you gonna choose the meek and lowly, humble Jesus? Are you gonna choose religion that looks good on the outside but it's full of dead man's bones or are you gonna choose relationship with, with Jesus? Which are you going to choose? Which king are you going to choose? Who, what, what are you going to do? And let me just say something that every day you make, I told this to my boys this week, every day you make a decision who you're going to follow. But here's the thing. Jesus may look humble. He may look weak. 
He may look unimpressive. But what you see in this text is he's both the lion and the lamb. On Palm Sunday, he was a lamb, meek and mild. On Monday, he was a lion, strong and majestic. On Monday, he was Mr. Rogers. I mean, on Sunday, he was Mr. Rogers. On Monday, he was Chuck Norris. He was. He's the lion and the lamb. The first time Jesus came into town, he came in riding a donkey, and he came to bring peace through the blood of his cross. But the next time he comes is not on a donkey, but on a white horse. Revelation says, Revelation 19, then I saw heaven and the heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen Pure and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury of God's wrath, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, he came the first time to rescue sinners. When he comes the second time, it will be to destroy sinners who have rejected him. And he will not come gently. He will come powerfully. He will not come crucified. He will come crowned as king. And we who are his children will mount up on horses with him and ride into town. And in that day, when he returns, shallow religion won't be enough. Hollow religion won't be enough to save you on that day. The only thing that will save you is surrendering to King Jesus. Because you either surrender to him now or you'll surrender to him later. I would say, do it now. Because it's better to surrender to Jesus as your Savior than to surrender to Jesus in his wrath. The psalmist says, kiss the son before he gets angry. Trust him now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let us leave here choosing you. You are our king. You are the king of kings. And everything we have is yours. May we not see ourselves as victims who deserve to be saved. But would we see ourselves as sinners who desperately need to be forgiven. And would we not try to earn our way to you. But would we trust in the way that you have given and earned for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing about the King of Kings. 
thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.